And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, December 22nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the TSP doesn't stand still. One critical new feature is coming in 2024 for your investments. Plus, DISA releases a new system to help military commanders see what was invisible. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Postal Service ran into two major payroll hang-ups in the last few months. The incidents held up paychecks for tens of thousands of rural carriers. Now the union representing the carriers is calling for USPS to pay penalties should the problems arise again. And for good measure, the union demands that USPS modernize the payroll system itself. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with the latest. So give us a quick review of what happened here. It sounds serious, Jory. Yeah, it's just been one of these problems that just snowballs from the initial incident. USPS in early September experienced a pretty substantial programming issue with its payroll system, and that caused about 52,000 rural letter carriers to either miss the regular paycheck or receive a partial paycheck for the pay period that ended on September 1st. And as a temporary workaround, what USPS had proposed was for carriers in this predicament that were affected by this issue, they were going to offer them what they called a salary advance, basically a money order that was going to be roughly 65% of their gross pay. So it would estimate roughly what they would be getting in that paycheck anyway. Now, there wasn't 100% uptake of impacted carriers getting those salary advances for a number of reasons. I've spoken to carriers that said that their post offices didn't offer them as an option. And other people said that they've uh, been through this situation before and the pay was remedied very quickly. And so they didn't bother with this and they were just going to wait for their paycheck. A whole bunch of things happened here. But what we know for certain is that it did take USPS, in some cases, one pay period, two pay periods, multiple pay periods to get this fixed and make sure that rural carriers got the back pay that they were entitled to. This happened again just before Thanksgiving, where the week of that holiday, a smaller incident, 2,200 employees were in the same boat and were once again not going to get this paycheck on time. And what about back pay? Was the Postal Service able to get that to them in a reasonable amount of time? Well, it did take, uh, in some cases, multiple pay periods for them to fully rectify the issue. One other downstream issue of all of this is that for those standard paychecks, a lot of these rural carriers had deductions like for mortgage or rent or things of that nature. And so they incurred, in some cases, some bank penalties because the pay that they got, if they even got any through that money order, created some additional problems and some additional uh, stress for them. And so this got to the point where a number of senators have been keyed into this issue. They complained to USPS about this, and it got to a point where we were the first to exclusively report that the Labor Department is now looking at this as a uh, an issue that its wage and hour division is investigating. Right. As the good book says, you shall not hold the wages of your laborers until the morning. And that's what the Postal Service was doing, probably not on purpose. And so what does the union specifically want now at this point? So at this point, the National Rural Letter Carriers Association is pretty fired up that this is not just a one-off thing, that this is something that has happened now twice at this magnitude. And what they want is 
they have filed a national grievance on this issue and they want assurances from the postal service that if this kind of thing happens again rural carriers don't just get the pay that they're entitled to but what we've heard from the union president don Mastin is that impacted carriers should also get some sort of financial compensation if they're in this boat if they continue to harm carriers by not paying them correctly and on time then there needs to be a monetary penalty for each instance that occurs. Yeah, liquidated damages maybe, but that's been hard to prove to the courts as we found in some of the shutdown pay interruption cases, these class action suits. And what about the idea of USPS modernizing its legacy payroll system? Sounds like it's not the system, but maybe the programmers working on it. Well, it's really interesting. When I was speaking with Mastin about this, he says every pay period, there is some sort of payroll issue that impacts rural carriers. It's sometimes, you know, a carrier here, a carrier there. It's seldom several thousand or tens of thousands of rural carriers. But he says, no matter what the number is, it's unacceptable if you're that rural carrier and you're just not getting the paycheck that you were owed. And so he says all of this, the big problems, the small problems, it all has to do with a legacy payroll system that USPS really needs to update from his perspective. And so if the union does get this this financial penalty in place here through this national grievance, they're really looking at this as a carrot and stick sort of way that if USPS on its own doesn't modernize the system, that having these penalties in place will incentivize them to modernize it. They need to spend money to update the equipment or the computer system. That money would be better served to do that as opposed to leave it in place and spend the money to pay the carriers for being harmed. So. It's an incentive. It's a penalty if you want to look at it that way. And, Jory, just for clarification, a lot of these rural carriers are not full-time employees. They're hourly, and so it's kind of a complicated payroll calculation for each one of them. They're not standard city carriers that are postal employees. And that's an important thing to bring up here, Tom, is that unlike some of the city carriers that are paid by the hour, there's a little bit more complicated math going on here where rural carriers are paid by their routes. And as you point out, sometimes these are relief carriers that are working multiple different routes on any given pay period. And so it does take a little bit of careful notation and uh, working with the data here to make sure that they are getting paid for specific routes on specific days. And what happens now with this national grievance that the union has filed? Well, it is the union's hope that they are able to resolve this amicably with USPS, that it's just those two parties involved and that they can reach an agreement that they can both live with. If that's not the case, well, a third party arbitrator would then hear the case and would issue a binding agreement that both parties would have to comply with. And what do we know about how the carriers themselves are holding up under all of this? Well, it's definitely taking a toll on them. This has been a hard job for them the past couple of years. The USPS in general has been short-staffed. You know, they've seen some pretty tough turnover, especially with their pre-career workforce ranks. And what we heard from Mastin is that this is just a piece of the puzzle here, that if this is a job where you have to second guess whether you're going to get your paycheck on time, that's a tough thing for new recruits to hear. And so they're quick to leave hearing that kind of problem is going around. And this is coming, of course, at the time of their year-end peak season. And so all this adds up to be quite a mess. Yeah. Merry Christmas to the people bringing you your mail and presents. Tough time. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Still ahead, DISA releases a new system to help military commanders and people right on the lines see what was sort of invisible. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A new capability from the Defense Information Systems Agency aims to give warfighters what it calls situational awareness of the electromagnetic spectrum. The spectrum itself has become a battle space, so it's important to know what's going on there. Here with more on the Baby Steps version of this tool, the Deputy Director of the Program Executive Office Spectrum, Kevin Laughlin. Mr. Laughlin, good to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be with you today. And let's begin with some basic definitions here. Situational awareness in the electromagnetic spectrum. It sounds like you want to see the invisible here. (laughs) That's an interesting way to describe it. And uh, yes, situational awareness is a a key uh, aspect of command and control. Understanding uh, what's going on around in the environment around you, whether that's air, land, sea, space, cyber domains, and of course now the spectrum domain is becoming very critical to uh, all things we do across all those warfighting domains. With EMBM joint situational awareness, one of the things that we're doing for the Department for Warfighters is bringing together multiple disparate feeds of data, raw and other data sets. And what this will allow operators to do is make sense of this information where previously they would have had to have gone to uh, a number of different sources, a number of different software capabilities. EMBM Joint Situational Awareness brings that data together into one location where they can visualize it and they can gain that situational awareness, that understanding of what's happening in the spectrum. Therefore, very quickly put information in front of the staff and decision makers so that they can make decisions more quickly than the enemy. And what can happen in the spectrum? I mean, the spectrum is out there and information, orders, imagery, and so on are going back and forth over it with radios and so forth. So tell us more about what can happen in there that you would need to know about. People trying to jam it, for example? Uh, Yes, a number of things. Clearly, radio frequency waves carry data, all types of data and information back and forth, again, so that we can send and receive orders, transmit information out to the tactical edge, but also sense and make sense of the different signals and emissions that are happening in the radio frequency spectrum. So being able to bring in what we know about ourselves, what we are discovering, sensing about other emitters, both coalition, enemy, and even commercial, that all has a great impact on the congestion uh, constraints in uh, the spectrum and how we want to operate, how we want to maneuver. So uh, the situational awareness capability brings that information together so we can make sense of it much more quickly and uh, make decisions at the speed of uh, relevance. And can this help in two different ways? One, knowing what the opponent or the enemy might be doing by putting up an antenna and seeing the nature and content perhaps of their emissions of waveforms. And can it also help plan the best pathway and the best frequency for our own forces to make sure that they can get the message through. Yes, absolutely. You hit on a couple of pieces. Uh, one, understanding uh, what other emitters are out there, uh, adversarial, you know, or even um, other government 
the host nation, et cetera. Uh, it helps us better understand, uh, and as you pointed out, at times when there's congestion or interference from some of those signals, we can quickly identify and take steps to mitigate, and that might be moving our own use to another part of the spectrum. Those are all decisions that take place within that operating headquarters, but clearly you pointed on a couple of things. Having that awareness, that situational awareness of what's happening in the uh, electromagnetic spectrum environment and being able to very quickly make sense of that information and make decisions that help our fighting forces stay ahead of their adversaries. And during a situation, a battle, or during a, say, a large-scale exercise that the military would conduct with another nation, is there someone or a certain staff devoted to monitoring the spectrum during that operation? Yes, there's actually a number of uh, staff functions across the J-code, the joint code staff elements. You have electronic signals collecting, you have maneuver and fires, and you have the planning and and management of the uh, cyber network actions. The department is actually evolving doctrinally to a concept referred to as uh, EMSO, EMS operations, where some of those functions are being consolidated, aligned under traditionally a J3 and operations code in what's referred to as a GEMSOC, a joint EMS operations cell. And they would be the primary users of the EMBMJ the product line. Not all the uh, department is uh, aligned that way, so you still may have, and you you even outside of the GEMSOC would have uh, EMS operations, folks wanting to use or able to use these capabilities. We're speaking with Kevin Laughlin. He's Deputy Director of the Program Executive Office Spectrum at the Defense Information Systems Agency. And what precisely have you produced here? Integrative type of software layer? Is this an application that someone would run on, on a PC? And what are some of the types of data that you had to integrate? Because I imagine with all of these different bandwidths and operations, it's a varied kind of vegetable stew of, of data types you'd have to deal with. EMVMJ situational awareness in the overall program effort aligns with combined joint all-domain command and control in terms of a framework and guiding principles, reference architectures to allow for interoperability. In this case with EMVMJ, for example, it's a cloud capability. The minimum viable capability release is a first iteration, if you will. In fact, uh, the MVCR is uh, defined as the initial set of features suitable to be fielded to an operational environment providing value to the uh, warfighter or the end user in a rapid timeline. So the MVCR delivers uh, initial warfighting capabilities to enhance some of the mission outcomes. It's sometimes referred to as a minimum marketable product in the commercial industry. Right, so you're a step beyond beta at this point. This is something that's deployable. The system went live on the uh, 6th of December, and it is in the hands of the department. There's users today utilizing uh, this minimum viable capability release. And what we intend to do is uh, continue to build on the uh, current capability. We have plans to bring in uh, additional data feeds back to the uh, first question you asked, uh, the ability to uh, auto uh, correlation of events to enable the user to quickly see possible causes of electromagnetic interference, additional engineering services to support modeling and simulation of activities within the spectrum. We're bringing in additional satellite data and modeling a number of different things. And additionally, working with some federal uh, defense uh, research centers looking to identify uh, AI ML use cases for implementation in the future iterations as well. Yeah, I was going to say, there's got to be AI in here somewhere. There is everything else. (laughs) 
Yes, that is the plan, and there's some initial uh, work in, in that area to identify opportunities to uh, better understand, utilize that common data layer. That's part of the electromagnetic battle management joint uh, situational awareness capability. So uh, as I said earlier, we align with the uh, CJET C2 guiding principles, and one of those is a minimum essential required metadata within the uh, EMBMJ situational common uh, sure. situational awareness common data layer that utilizes open REST APIs implementation of identity, credential, and monitoring, ICAM. We're working with the CGHC2 working group to map EMBMJ capabilities to uh, multiple different mission function areas across the joint force. And as I said earlier, exploring uh, implementation of AIML use cases, utilizing enterprise transport solutions for uh, resiliency. And also uh, a big thing that we like to talk about is the uh, use of a software factory pipeline and agile development. Uh, this is critical because uh, we uh, are able to get enhancements, upgrades out to the users more quickly but uh, using these uh, agile software development processes, we have um, regular routine engagement with the users. And that's really critical for a number of reasons. As the environment changes and as we uh, learn lessons from real world events, we can very quickly use uh, work with the requirements uh, group to update the requirements, make sure that we are you know, staying on top of uh, what they need. Uh, but also we're getting direct feedback into uh, the development processes and the uh, users are able to tell us whether we're on the right track or not. Right. Somebody in the field could say, hey, you missed this particular thing we really need to know about, and you could find a way to inculcate that data into this tool. Absolutely. And uh, we work uh, very closely with the joint community, uh, primarily led by U.S. Uh, Strategic Command. U.S. Stratcom is the joint sponsor, their proponent for uh, joint EMS operations. And they are a great teammate in bringing the joint community together and identifying the uh, changes, the, the TTPs, the things that are happening in the world bringing that back to the requirements uh, processes, ensuring that we're on top of it. And then, like you said, making sure that the users are getting what they need. And there's this overarching effort going on, the Combined Joint All-Domain Command and Control, JADC2, is a Pentagon-wide effort. And then each of the armed services is developing their own C2, if you will, to interoperate under JADC2. This new tool you are deploying, that'll work with future JADC2 pieces? Yes, absolutely. The uh, CJAD C2 uh, concept or construct is really uh, best described as a framework, if you will, a reference design, a reference architecture that guides and maintains interoperability. So as you uh, address command and control functions from the uh, strategic to the uh, joint operational levels of war and down to the component, the service level and tactical, by having a framework that's understood and designs and standards to ensure interoperability, things that I mentioned earlier, ICAM, zero trust, uh, exchange standards, cloud native development, microservices, all those things help, as you pointed out, uh, ensure interoperability and very rapid data exchange, information exchanges so that we uh, are able to allow our decision makers to make decisions very quickly ahead of their adversaries. Kevin Laughlin is Deputy Director of the Program Executive Office Spectrum at the Defense Information Systems Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Very happy to be here today. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, why 2023 was a record year for GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. But first, the Thrift Savings Plan doesn't stand still. Here's one critical new feature coming in 2024. You're listening to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The iFund, that's the international stock fund operated by the Thrift Savings Plan. Next year, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board will overhaul how the iFund goes about making investments. For what this means and why it's important, we turn to certified financial planner Art Stein of Arthur Stein Financial. Art, good to have you back. Good to be back, Tom. And you have studied this pretty closely, and there's a new index associated with it. Can we begin by just explaining what an index is in this context and how it works generally? Yeah, an index is uh, produced by an outside company, and they make decisions about what investments should be included in their index and in what proportions, you know, what percentage amounts should go into each stock. And they then license that index to various people. So the iFund's been using an index that is very common. It's called the MSCIEAFE index. And it's a very commonly used index. And it only invests in developed countries and only certain developed countries and only in very large companies. And we should point out that stands for Morgan Stanley Capital International, Europe, Australasia, and the Far East. (laughs) Exactly. And now they're in an index with an even more complicated name. Now they're going to an index. The change will take place in 2024 called, once again, MSCI, same company produced it, ACWIIMIXUSAXHINAXHONGKONG index. And so here's what that means. It's a much broader based index. It's going to invest in twice as many countries in stocks from twice as many countries. It's going to invest in seven times as many stocks, so much larger percentage of foreign stocks that are out there. And it's going to exclude stocks of companies from China and Hong Kong, because this became a political issue. Right. A lot of Congress people did not want TSP investing in China, and that includes now Hong Kong. So it's going from 21 countries in which stocks exist that this index can invest in to 44. So that is a major expansion. Major expansion. And all the extra countries, well, they added Canada finally. I don't know why they ever excluded Canada. But then they added 23 what they call emerging market countries. This is like countries in Latin America and Thailand and various other places. So much more broader based. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. What struck me is that the rate of return based upon the figures provided by the FRTIB, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, not a big difference in performance. And of course, performance has been a big complaint with the iFund for a long time. So, you know, I took the figures and tried to summarize them, did summarize them in a couple of ways. One, the average annual rate of return over the last 20 years, according to the FRTIB figures, would have been 9.3% for the new index compared to 8.4% for the old index. And to give it perspective, I then did an example. Again, it's in my blog. Suppose you had 100,000 in each of the indexes 20 years ago, and what would they be today? And with the new index it would be worth 437,000 with the current index would be 394,000. So, you know, that's an advantage, but it's only a 13% difference over a 20 year period. So really not a big difference in the performance. 
so essentially they're getting a tweak here. And just let me ask you one technical question, and this is my own ignorance about this. If you subscribe to that index, the new one that is they're about to use, does that index prescribe the percentage of each of the 5,621 stocks in that index. And if that's the case, then every fund that subscribes to that index would have identical performance, or how does that work? Yes. Every fund that invests in that index would have identical performance because part of the index is not only specifying which stocks, but which percentage in in each stock. So the same thing is true of the current index, the EAFE index. Its performance is going to be identical with the performance of any other mutual fund or exchange-traded fund that uses the same index. There might be small differences because of expenses, but basically they're going to have the same performance. And of course, the C fund and the S fund and the F fund are all index funds too. And the same thing is true. Those funds use indexes that are readily available in funds outside the TSP, and the performance is basically the same. Does that mean then the skill of the managers, in this case, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, is in picking the index, not in picking the mix of stocks that the fund represents? Exactly. That's a perfect way to put it. They get to pick the index. Now, it happens that they picked an index six years ago, and they were ready to institute it in, I think, 2020. It was going to go into effect. And that's when members of Congress said, wait a second, this includes China. We don't want that. Now, you know, I'm not in favor of political interference, but it happened to be like, you know, sometimes it's more important to be lucky than good. It was good that they did that because stocks in China have not done well over some period of time. What I think happened is then they turned to MSCI, the company that creates these indexes. So we want basically the same index only without China and Hong Kong. So they produce this index. As far as I can tell, it is not available outside the TSP at this point. I would not be at all surprised if that changed because, you know, there are other people who, you know, don't want to get involved with China and Hong Kong for a variety of reasons. Well, if you look what's been going on with the Ant Group, you know, and some of the big public trials going on right now of Chinese, I guess their equivalent of oligarchs, you know, anything can happen. China is volatile and things bubble up and then they collapse totally, often because you fall out of favor with the party. Well, you have that problem and just the fact that the economy in general is not doing well and their stock market is not doing well. Part of it is is political interference and part of it is economic competition with the United States. And we've acted in ways that has hurt Chinese stocks, which I suppose is one of the goals. But excluding politics, it is what it is. I think there's no reason to worry about the new index. I think it's fine. You know, the TSP is chosen to get an index from, you know, one of the major index providers. It shouldn't be a problem to manage. And I don't think people should worry about not being able to invest in Chinese stocks. Yeah, well, I mean, if you buy a Volvo, for example, a great Swedish car, it's actually the parent company is Chinese. And there's a lot of major brands in the United States that are, you trace it back, there's Chinese ultimate ownership. Very complicated. Including Lenovo, you know, which makes computers that lots of people like and buy. 
Yeah, so it's pretty hard to escape China in daily life, pretty much everything from what you wear, drive, eat, and consume. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, there's a connection to China. And just looking ahead to 2024 generally, the stocks in the United States, the Dow Jones Industrial Index, is you know at record highs. I don't think anyone would have predicted that six or nine months ago. What's your general feeling on how people, again, not investment advice, but how should they think about what they do in the coming year with respect well, to the TSP? Well, first of all, let's say that this year, you know, through the end of last month, stocks have done great. The C fund's up 21%, S fund 13%, the I fund's up 12%. It's been a great year for stocks. You know, the bond fund, the F fund is up a little bit, which is better than it has been doing. And the G fund's been up 3.8% this year because interest rates got so high. So it's been a great year. And it certainly rewarded people who stayed invested in 2022, which was a terrible year for stocks and bonds. And as a result, just a really bad year for investors because there aren't many years where you have double digit declines in both stocks and bonds. But we saw that last year. So people didn't bail out, really did themselves a favor. Uh, as far as next year, I would never forecast. It does appear that the Fed is not going to raise interest rates anymore. In fact, they've indicated that they're going to lower interest rates a little bit during the year. That should be very positive for bonds and stocks. But we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, and just look at 2020 started out as a very good year for about six weeks. And then we got hit with COVID or there could be a war. There could be a natural disaster. You know, who knows what is going to happen. But what I look at is long term stocks outperform bonds and bank accounts by significant amounts. And so for long-term investors, I mean, I think that, you know, we say past performance, no guarantee of future performance, but there's a pretty strong record for, you know, why people invest in stocks. And you speak of, you know, I know that you uh, have reported a lot on TSP millionaires. And when you look at what they're invested in, it's mainly the C and the S funds. You know, and they stuck with it. People who mainly invested in the F and G funds, they didn't become TSP millionaires. Right. Or else they did if they worked for 50 years <laughs> long yeah. after they felt If you like put retirement. in a million, you know, 900,000, you might have a million or whatever the figure would be. But they didn't become TSP millionaires. It's the people. I mean, I just heard from somebody last week and talking to them about doing a retirement plan. And, you know, they mainly invested in the G fund. And they, after many, many decades, have about 500,000. It just doesn't do that well. And I guess, too, be careful of the shiny object. I'm just reading a story in the Wall Street Journal about the electric car startups. Okay, so Tesla has been an interesting investment, maybe, that looks like that company will last. But three electric car startups, and they all had billions in market capitalization, briefly. Electric Mile Last Solutions, Proterra, Lordstown Motors have all filed for bankruptcy. And there's a couple of others which are scraping by to get enough cash to be able to build the cars people ordered. So sometimes shiny things that are huge in potential also you would want to avoid as too risky on the upside. Well, that's just an example of the difficulty of picking out individual stocks because somebody is going to do really well with electric cars. And Tesla's done well, but not well enough 
I think, to justify their stock price at the moment. But you don't know. And frequently, all these small companies who pile into something like electric vehicles, which becomes very popular suddenly, lots of them are going to fail. I mean, that's just the nature of investing. You know, Elon Musk has done a tremendous job of building up the company. Now the question is, is he going to do a tremendous job of maintaining whatever performance they have and you know that's an issue well yeah like you say i think the important thing is stick to the indexes don't try to pick them yourself art stein is a certified financial planner in bethesda maryland proprietor of arthur stein financial as always thanks so much for joining me thank you tom and we'll post this interview along with a link to his blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive subscribe to the federal drive wherever you get your shows Still to come, why 2023 was a record year for GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In fiscal 2023, for the first time, the Federal Acquisition Service, part of the General Services Administration, topped $100 billion in sales. That's $10 billion more than the previous year. Tom Howder, the soon-to-be acting commissioner, tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller at a recent webinar about why the sales numbers only tell part of the FAS success story. We continue to grow all over the place. $6 billion, $6 billion in savings that we produced for the American taxpayer through our various programs. And here's a percentage for you, 46%. Uh, that's the percentage of dollars that's awarded that went to eligible small businesses. So for the 13th consecutive year, GSA has earned an A or an A-plus from SBA in terms of our small business utilization. So lots of success there. Uh, I would also mention with AAS, the obligations were also $18 billion. And obligations are an indicator of future revenue. So we're going into the year strong with AAS and it's going to continue to grow. But that wasn't the only place that we, uh, we had successes. Uh, our general supplies and services had an outstanding year as well. Uh, really aggressive growth uh, centered on the retail operations front, especially, uh, but also the, the requisition channels were growing, uh, especially as uh, the needs for the Department of Defense have increased over the last couple of years, and we've taken advantage of that and helped them out as well. So the only place where we have a little bit of uncertainty is with uh, our TTL organization. Certainly parts of it have been up. Uh, I would say, you know, the airlines, uh, government's back traveling again, but we're also getting buffeted by the automotive environment in general. So if you've gone out and tried to buy a car in your personal life, you've seen what the prices have gone to. Uh, so we have that uh, facing us. But at the same time, we've managed to uh, purchase about 15% uh, of our vehicles are zero emissions. So we've been increasing that over the last year as well. So uh, even where uh, we have some turbulence in the environment, we're showing some great successes. So really, really happy with how FY23 turned out for us. That $100 billion number, and I saw there's a blog post by Sonny Hashmi maybe a week or so ago, really uh, also highlighting a lot of these successes. Can you talk a little bit about was that surprising? You, you see the numbers come in during the year. So, of course, you see the buildup. But the fact is that this, if I remember correctly, it's probably the first time you've ever broken the $100 billion mark. Yes, oh, that, that was surprising. We knew that parts of the organization were going to continue with phenomenal growth rates. AAS has been on a tear for the last decade. 
we were less certain in some other parts of the organization to see us grow then from 90 billion to 100 billion in overall business volume was a very pleasant surprise. A lot of that comes back to the, the growth in federal procurement, but not all of it. Did you see some trends that said the growth in federal procurement, of course, has been up, especially during the pandemic? We saw that. But was there other reasons why you said, oh, this is why agencies are coming to GSA more? I mean, you, you have some customer feedback. You've had some, uh, we saw AAS grow. Is there any trends you'd point to to say why that, that growth happened beyond people spent more money? Part of it is that we've gotten better positioning ourselves into markets that maybe we haven't been in before. A good example of that is the Cyber program, uh, which a few years ago was zero for us. And uh, now I think our our obligation level is over a billion dollars there. So we're growing very quickly in cyber. I see that happening. I see us moving into the ISR, Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance. Uh, so we hadn't had much business with that community in the past, and we've really been able to, to move forward there. Uh, and also, I would say just the general growth in DOD. So as there are, are military needs increasing around the world, we're helping them with uh, you know the support of that. Obviously, we don't provide anything like weapon systems or things that go boom, but there's a lot of other things that uh, DOD requires, and we're able to fill those needs. So the, I think those are a lot of uh, the organic growth areas that we have. And because, Tom, we have an IT audience here, and, and a lot of the folks at act IAC focus on the IT sector, are there some trends around the IT sector you'd point to? I mean, I know we've talked about, uh, I gave some numbers around the IT category and some of the successes that Laura Stanton mentioned the other day. Are there some trends you'd point to that say, uh, whether it's contracting trends or just buying trends, you could say, oh, that's that was surprising, that was a nice surprise, that that made us really saw some growth areas too? I don't know if they're particularly surprising, but you're certainly seeing a lot of focus on you know, the supply chain, cybersecurity are certain growth areas. We're looking at AI to start taking off as well. So those are the places that I, that I would really look where we're expecting some pretty robust growth over time. Tom, 2023 was a, was a banner year, lots of good success. Let's move on to 2024. What have you done for me lately? What, what are some of those plans and priorities? We obviously intend to continue focusing on Sunny Hashmi's North Stars. And so to quickly recapitulate what that is, uh, tremendous value for our customer mission, thriving marketplace, and dead easy to do business with. So you're going to see everything falling within that specific paradigm. Uh, and so specifically, you're really going to see us focusing on user experience. That is something that has been a big priority of our administrator. And so that's uh, it's going to be very important to us as well. Small business fulfillment, certainly going to be focusing a lot there. Uh, as I mentioned a second ago, cybersecurity and scrim. I'd also say uh, we're going to be focusing on uh, the services marketplace, Oasis Plus. We want to get that awarded this year. A big thing for us, uh, acquisition workforce. Uh, we simply don't have enough acquisition professionals, so a lot of attention in terms of recruitment and retention of them. Fleet electrification. As I mentioned, we did get uh, our fleet up to 15% zero emission vehicles. We want to increase that. Some of that's going to be supply chain issue. It's just hard to get the vehicles on the market, but we're going to try to push that. And then I think you're going to see a lot in our systems environment. So uh, different tools that we provide either external to GSA or internally to GSA, say, for example, supplier portal or catalog management or Calm. Calm is our, uh, our system for putting together contracts. Uh, and then finally, I think uh, the real 
thing that we're going to be working on is sort of encapsulating all of that is framing fast for the future, the F4 initiative. That is where we have fundamentally changed uh, the structure of the Federal Acquisition Service, where today we no longer have regions. Now, the rest of GSA, they do have regions, but Federal Acquisition Service, uh, we've deregionalized. All the people remain in the same place. Nobody lost their job. Nobody really changed their functions much. But we're looking at it in a new way. We have a centralized management structure today. People want to know what is going on with all the different acquisitions. So let's let's do the easy one, Tom. Oasis Plus. Hopefully be awarded this year. There you go. Good. See, I knew it was going to be easy. Speed round. Polaris. It's an interesting situation with, uh, you know, the, the Croft C decision uh, and now as we try to uh, remediate that, to have another set of, of protests come in. I'm just hoping we can get it across the line. I fear, in general, that we start to get ourselves into a tragedy of the common situation uh, with a lot of uh, these acquisitions where companies, you know, very much uh, looking out for their own best interests, as they should, ends up hobbling the overall success of the program. And I don't think that's just with Polaris. I think you see that with some of the other acquisitions, even outside of, of GSA. We're hoping we can get through it and resolve it. What I would really hate to see is if COFSI has a certain set of decisions and then GAO has like different sets of decisions and then it has to become like a legislative fix. That's, that's a fear and a, a concern in general. Hope that doesn't happen. Uh, and hope we can get through. Tom Howder on January 1st will be the acting commissioner of GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO. Subscribe at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, December 22nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the TSP doesn't stand still. One critical new feature is coming in 2024, plus... DISA releases a new system to help military commanders see what was invisible. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the White House has put its shoulder behind accessibility requirements for federal technology. 
the Office of Management and Budget issued a brand new Section 508 memo that orders a bevy of agency-specific and government-wide actions. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the latest. And what can people expect now, Justin? Yeah, this new memo was signed out December 21st. It's all about strengthening digital accessibility and the management of Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. And it's notable because it really represents the first White House action on Section 508 since 2013. So it's been a decade. And it's come as more and more IT and technology is provisioning government services, of course, and federal employees also increasingly rely on technology to do their jobs. The memo says accessible federal technology should therefore be an operational imperative. And that's considering about 25% of U.S. adults live with a disability and about 17% of the federal workforce reported having a disability in 2022. So this memo uh, really makes accessibility in federal technology, both inside government and the public-facing stuff, a big priority. And what specifically do agencies have to do? Because 508 has been a requirement for, as you say, not just 10 years, but about 30 years. That's right. Yeah. Well, it directs agencies to provide OMB with the name and contact information for an agency-wide Section 508 program manager within the next 30 days. So there's that accountability line right there for meeting the Section 508 requirements. And then it also tells agencies to establish a feedback mechanism to remediate any Section 508 issues. This is particularly important for federal websites. The federal government's own data shows that about 60% of federal websites have at least one accessibility issue. So within 90 days, OMB is directing agencies to establish a public feedback mechanism for receiving any complaints or reports about accessibility issues with websites and other digital services. They just have to make sure that the feedback mechanism is accessible. That's right. I I think that's step one in this whole process. Well, (laughs) I mean, I spoke with Mike Giffords. He's a senior strategist at the digital services firm Civic Actions. He says the feedback mechanism should help agencies more quickly uncover and fix issues. Having that feedback loop so that it's not getting routed through the Section 508 office of the agency, but it's really geared to the website and making sure that that feedback can get back to the people who are building the website, not in order to, to launch a grievance, but in order to fix the problem. The shorter that feedback loop is, the, the more effective it, it will be to address accessibility issues that come up. And of course, OMB and the General Services Administration, where I think a lot of the technical information and support for 508 actually lives, at least it has for a couple of generations, what are they going to do to help agencies out here? OMB is going to work with GSA and the government-wide access board that sets these standards to update government-wide Section 508 resources, things like best practices, playbooks. They're going to put out some sample accessibility statements that agencies can use on their websites and also help them with this new feedback mechanism we just spoke about. And then GSA specifically is going to help with some new, quote-unquote, buy accessible initiatives under this memo. They will explore options for establishing a central repository of vendor accessibility conformance reports, so how companies are doing. And then they'll also establish a government-wide service within the next year to help agencies acquire different things that could help with accessibility standards, like testing services and things like that. Mike Giffords talked about how it's important to kind of 
put this in the procurement, put this issue front and center in the procurement process. If you can get it fixed upstream in the products that are being sold to government agencies and make sure that they're able to improve their products and, and shape the incentives of the, of the process so that more accessible products are being favored in the procurement process. That's so important. But even more so is, is reaching to the procurement officers, the people who are actually making these decisions and making sure that they have the skills and the information that they need, the subject matter experts, so that they can help to provide clear instructions to vendors who are looking to, to win government contracts in the future. And Justin, you mentioned that there is a 90-day deadline here. My experience with these types of memos is there's usually 120 and a 240 and a year and a two-year action plan. What else is OMB looking to longer term to improve this whole accessibility question? Yeah, these next two are going to happen or have a deadline of one year. First, the CIO Council will work with agencies to set up a government-wide program for assistive technology devices and services or assistive technology consultation services. And then GSA is going to work with the Access Board over the next year to establish a federal digital accessibility design and testing lab. And that will be staffed with accessibility specialists who can do things like automated and manual testing of federal technology to test for those accessibility issues. Anything else people need to watch out for? Yeah, beyond this memo, federal CIO Claire Martirana in uh, November actually previewed that the government has been doing a government-wide Section 508 assessment. This was mandated by the 2023 Congressional Spending Bill. And Martirana says this will be completed by December 29th. So that's coming up here pretty quickly. This will look at how agencies are already implementing Section 508, prioritizing digital accessibility in their services. And now with this new memo and this forthcoming assessment, they'll know maybe where they need to go. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Tom. And you can access his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, DISA releases a new system to help military commanders see what was sort of invisible. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.